Hello, and welcome to Unsheathed with your hosts, Kyle Gold and Cam Hirosaki. We hope that you enjoy the program. Please stick around afterwards. There'll be cake and blowjobs. Hi, welcome to Unsheathed number 27. We're here in our undisclosed discreet location or indiscreet disclosed location with a couple of special guests. My podcasting partner in crime is unfortunately not available this weekend, but in his place we have, for the first time ever on this show, Rikoshi. Hey, hi Kyle, thank you for having me on the show. And our return special guest, Not Tube. Hello, I apologize. I know I said that I would never be intoxicated on this program before, but it was the Super Bowl party, and good lord. <laughs> and so we're... <laughs> We're looking forward to a fairly entertaining evening here. Uh, we're going to talk to Rikoshi about his book, The Seventh Chakra, which came out three weeks ago, two weeks ago at Further Confusion. And then Rikoshi is going to talk to me about my book, Shadow of the Father, which also came out at Further Confusion. Uh, I know we both had a, a great time signing books there, and I saw that uh, you had a lion uh, pretty much any time you sat down. It wasn't as impressive as your line, but that's okay. Um, I'm not jealous or anything. But uh, Oh, Fox, it's not the size of the line. No, it's not. And actually, it's actually really cool because this was... Um, I sort of feel like this is where maybe I, I have finally sort of hit the mark, as it were, of you know sort of being an author that is on the radar, which, you know, by itself is more than I would have ever hoped for. So I can't really complain. So one of the things that I thought was pretty interesting was that you, when you came out with Thousand Leaves, which was a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and a lot of people picked up the book kind of sight unseen uh, on the strength of knowing you and knowing your writing, but also knowing Sofa Wolf. And a lot of people have come back to buy the Seventh Chakra, uh, which I think is really cool and speaks to your talent as a writer to bring these people in. You know, anyone can get someone to buy a first book, but getting them to buy a second book is pretty impressive. So congratulations on that. Well, thank you. Actually, I think that saying that you can convince anyone to buy a first book might be a bit of saying much. I was actually really surprised that people bought my first book, especially since, you know, during my very first con where my book was released, which was Anthrocon 2008, I was talking to people who were getting my book signed, and I asked, hey, how did you find out about this? Who did you hear this from? And I would have people refer me from folks that I had no idea who they were. So, I mean, I didn't have any books out. I didn't really have much writing out. And so, clearly, I had this base of people who were willing to read my work that I don't know how I built it up. So, I mean, that was flattering enough as it is. And the fact that people came back for round two was just terrific. So when did you get to a point, I want to talk a little more about the process of writing the second book. A mm-hmm. um, couple of questions. When did you get to the point where you knew that you had a novel to write and was it made easier or more difficult by the fact that you had already written one? So that's actually an interesting question because I was in the process of writing another novel when I stopped to write The Seventh Chakra. Um, I was sort of toying with a few ideas for another book, and I was... I guess I could say I was kind of dabbling to put words on paper for another idea. 
And I could never quite get anywhere with it because this other idea for a story kept poking within my brain. And it got to the point where I was giving that more thought than I was the piece that I was working on. And I kept on entertaining that. And it's kind of hard to describe the exact moment when I realized, okay, I have a novel except that I remember that it was while I was on my way home from work one day, <laughs> which is not really that useful of a, uh, a trigger. But it is easy to describe. It is easy to describe. Basically, I came up with the climax of the novel first. I knew where the action all culminated. I knew who the characters were, and I knew what was going to happen. And I thought about that for a little bit, and I go, okay, you know, who are these characters? What's going on? What does it mean? And as I was thinking about that, I realized, okay, this is a very in-depth scenario. It's a very complex situation. It's more of an arc involving a series of characters more than it is a story of just this climax event that I've thought up. That makes it more of a novel than a short story. And I just kind of sat down and decided, okay, let's see where it goes with this. And that's where the novel came from. So was it made easier to write by having your first novel out already? As much as I would love to say yes, the answer is no. And actually, I think that having written a novel already actually hampered me in this. Because it was a really difficult story to write, and whenever I would have either A, problems writing it, or B, any crises of faith in getting the words down on paper, I would look at the fact of, okay, I've already written a novel, I know I can do this, like, on an intellectual level and in a factual level, like, okay, I already have a novel that I've written, you know, like, I know I can do this, but I'm not doing it now, and it was it was sort of like the sophomore effort of, I've done this before, I've proven to myself that I can do this, and yet at the same time, I was really hard on myself about that, and it was, maybe I was holding myself back, I'm not sure, but it, it I was putting a lot of pressure on myself to make it as good as I could be, I guess I could say, and so... So, so I haven't done the first one you're kind of thinking like the first one was unexplored territory. So whatever you're doing is okay because you don't have guidelines, but as you're doing the second one, you kind of have this template in your head. And if the second novel doesn't match up to the way you remember the first, then you start to worry. That was a big part of it because it didn't feel the same. And anyone who has read both of the books will probably say that the two books don't feel the same. And that was partially by design. I think I learned a lot of my first novel, but I was thinking, okay, I've learned what I could from the mistakes I've made the first time around, but those, the lessons I learned the first time didn't apply to the problems I was having the second time. So with, um, with both of these, um, did you, when you started out writing each of these, did you start out, start out with the idea that you were going to write a novel, or um, did they evolve as you went along? I did start both of them with the idea that they would be novels. Uh, with Thousand Leaves, I was thinking about the world that I was sort of thinking about in my head, and I was trying to 
I was trying to lay out the historical details of what took place in this setting. And it was simply in the process of trying to nail those historical points down that I realized that one of these points in particular actually had a pretty complex story behind that. And after thinking about that one day, I thought, you know, this is actually a pretty detailed, complex story that I could probably write a novel about. And having never written a novel before, I wasn't quite sure how I knew that, but I thought, well, I may as well give it a try. And, you know, that came out two years ago, so I guess that means I was at least somewhat right about my initial hunch. Uh, With the seventh chakra, it was a very similar initial thought process where in both cases I thought of the climax first and then the situation around it and I thought, okay, this is a you know deeply layered, complex story. I think I'm going to have to take a really long time to explore this, the characters involved in the story around it. So, uh, Rikoshi, um, you, you indicated that uh, writing this novel was harder than the previous one and as I'm in process of working on my first i was curious in in which way was it how was it harder to to work on this one than the previous one was so in one sense one of the reasons that it was really hard was because i was dealing with there's sort of a character philosophy that comes through in the seventh chakra that doesn't come through in thousand leaves and that sort of leads into the next point in which Thousand Leaves is the story of a cast of characters. The Seventh Chakra is more the story of one character. In the simple way to explain that is that I have a single viewpoint. I have one main character, which isn't the case of uh, with Thousand Leaves. When I was writing Thousand Leaves, I was... If you look at this, and you can sort of see this come through... I was a big fan of TV shows like Lost and Battlestar Galactica, where you have multiple main characters and multiple focal characters. And that's a huge element of Thousand Leaves, that you have multiple focal characters. Seventh Chakra has one focal character. And then because of that, it was really difficult for me to strike a balance between introspection and moving the action forward because I didn't want action to overtake everything but I also didn't want the main character to not focus on himself enough and the good thing with Thousand Leaves is because I had multiple characters is that whenever the introspection got too heavy I could switch to someone else and that wasn't an option the second time around so do you think that um, that was the only thing that made it harder? Or do you think that just writing a second novel after having written a first one itself is, is more difficult? I think there's some of that. I was definitely holding myself to a higher standard. And one thing I've told people is that my real hope for my second book is that, if anything else, is I hope it's better than my first one. I mean, as a writer, that's really the simplest thing I can hope is that my books get better as I go along. And so do you feel there was pressure you were putting pressure on yourself to write a better book because you now had something to to compare it to? I do think that that was the case. I do think that I was being kind of hard on myself and 
in retrospect, I can see where I was probably being too hard on myself. Um, but at the same time, they are very different stories and they explore very different themes. And so I'm still not a hundred percent sure whether, okay, maybe the themes that I explored in thousand leaves were simpler for me than the ones that I explored in the seventh chakra or whether, you know, the difference in viewpoint and the difference in, you know, sort of thematic responsibility were just harder for me to wrap my head around the second time around. And uh, I understand from uh, reading uh, Weasel Wordsmith's site that you're working on a, a third book set in that universe now, dealing with the Butterfly Islands War. <laughs> uh, is that um, is that from one or multiple multiple perspectives? And do you find that uh, more or less difficult than writing the previous book? I'm debating that. Uh, without giving too much away... It's either going to be from one point... It's either going to be from one viewpoint or it'll be from two. It's going to be one of those two. It's not going to be from, you know, half a dozen like Thousand Leaves was. But there are two very important characters in the next story I'm working on. Um, which I'm not 100% sure yet how I want to do it. For anyone who has read Thousand Leaves... There are two main characters, and I could have gone back and forth between the two of them, but ultimately I decided not to. You mean Seventh Chakra? Yes. So these are two... Did I misspeak? I'm sorry. You said Thousand Leaves. Okay. These are two characters we recognize then. Yes. So Seventh Chakra, the two main characters are Arkady and Ilhyong, who people who have read Thousand Leaves... Uh, they appear in that story as well. And their stories parallel each other to an extent, but the narrative is entirely from Arkady's viewpoint. And, you know, an argument could be made that it would be possible to tell that same story alternating viewpoints between those two characters. Right now, as I'm going through the story of uh, my next book in my head, I'm debating whether it would make more sense to restrict it to a single character viewpoint or to uh, switch back and forth between two. But those are really the only two characters that strike me as being uh, viewpoint worthy, if I can say that. As opposed to, you know, Thousand Leaves, there are several characters that all get a viewpoint. And I think that in that case, it was legitimate. But in the case of this next story that I'm working on, I'm still not completely sure what I want to do with it. Um, so if you had to pick one thing that you learned about writing novels from the process of writing The Seventh Chakra, um, what was one thing that stands out? Oh. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I almost think I learned more about novel writing the second time around than I did the first point around. But if there's one thing, I would say that it is making sure that you adhere to your character arc. I know that on your podcast, Kyle, that you're big on character arcs and character development. And when you have an ensemble cast, you can sort of rationalize, okay, the plot and the story is more important to what's going on than anything that goes on with one individual character. 
in this case, it was, okay, I really need to make sure that my one main character is interesting. I need to make sure that the reader is going to be with him. And I need to make sure that what happens to him makes sense. And if you're switching viewpoints, there's a bit of... You can sort of obfuscate any, um, I guess, you know, moments where there's a lack of transparency between the author and the reader. When you're stuck with a single character the whole time, it's actually very different. And I think that the author responsibility is really... You, you have to really make sure that if the reader is going to be with one character the whole time, that it's a good character, or it's at least a character that's entertaining to follow. And I think that in some ways having multiple characters was a crutch for me the first time around. And so the second time around, it was, okay, there were definite flaws in my first draft of, you know, this this character is too wishy-washy, this character is too weak. How do I change the character in a way that will make the reader identify with him more while at the same time not changing the story. Yeah, you have to pay a lot more attention to the character arc when you're just doing one main character because he has to have a progression that the reader can follow all the way through. Yeah. Um, Cool. How much would you say the the character that, um, as he's written it, changed from the first... uh, initial drafts to the final one um quite a bit really uh so for this isn't really a spoiler but the main character of the seventh chakra uh is the character of arkady who you know as i've said also appears in a thousand leaves but my very first draft i think he was a really weak character and one of the big themes of the story is leadership and there's sort of like a dual between leadership and friendship. And that was something I wanted to explore, and that's one of the deliberate themes of the story. But the very first time I wrote the actual plot, the character, as he followed through that plot, was really weak, he was really wishy-washy, and he was hard to identify with because I I got the feeling that people just kind of wanted to smack him when I was sort of, you know, giving people glimpses of my early chapters is, hey, can you read this? Let me know what the, well, let me know what you think of this, you know, the story and this character. And he was, he was too weak. He was too conflicted. And you obviously want conflict for your main character, but you also want your character to be somebody that you want to be able to see as a hero. And so, yes, you need flaws, but you don't want them to be like all flaws. And that was a balance that I thought was really hard to strike. And when I was going through in my subsequent drafts and my subsequent edits that I paid a lot of attention to. All right. Um, Any last things that you want to say about the book? We're going to try to keep this kind of short so we don't run an hour and a half. Um, Well, the the biggest thing I can say is that the turnout for uh, people that mentioned the book signing earlier... Uh, the turnout for the you know the book signing and the uh, fact that people are, you know, had read my first book and were coming back for a second was hugely flattering. I'm amazed that uh, I was able to you know get people to come back for round two. Oh, that's a sign of having written a good first novel, and 
Uh, from yeah. what I hear, everybody agrees with us that the second one is uh, is even better. Yeah, I mean, like I said, that was my main goal was that you know my second book would be better than the first, and my hope now is that my third book will be better than the second. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it's been a really great experience, you know, getting to put this down on paper. And uh, one of the things that you learn a lot in I've taken many classes about writing and about storytelling and they always tell you just have one main character. And I didn't do that with my first novel. And I don't think I believed it when I was writing my first novel. And so when I went to my second and I realized, okay, this is really one person's story. It was, there there was a bit of a, a stumbling block there because I knew that it was possible to write a story from multiple points of view, but in a way that's harder. And it, it, it was almost like I had skipped a step. And so going back to keeping, it was almost, I don't want to say this like it was too simple to be easy, but keeping the cat, the, keeping the, you know, the, the focal camera, on one character was harder because it forced me to be more honest with the story I was telling. And in retrospect, I can see where that was the real challenge for me was I can't cheat anymore. I can't, I can't use these shortcuts and I can't use these, you know, sort of tricks to keep the reader from seeing the flaws in the story is okay. They're there with me the whole time and they're there with my main character the whole time. And there's no way I can disguise that. And I think in the end, the story is better off for it that I was able to, you know, realize that and that I was able to see the flaws in you know, my initial drafts. And, you know, I'm really just hoping now that the end result is a, uh, a book that reads well and, you know, a story that, people can enjoy and that, uh, you know, you know, I hope I can surpass it the next time around. It's actually kind of funny that you mentioned that whole thing with multiple points of view, since my last two novels have actually been from multiple points of view, albeit only two characters, not your cast of, I think four or five and thousand leaves. Oh, there's more than that. Well, that get point of view narratives. Uh, there's, there's more than five. Okay. There, there, there are several characters that get, one-off points, but uh, I don't know if you want to count those. Well, anyway, uh, I'm going to turn the podcast over to y'all now, and um, if you want to ask me questions, we'll finish out the hour or however long it's going to take. Sure. So the one thing I wanted to ask you is, since I had mentioned that my next book may or may not be you know, a two-person main character point of view story or you know maybe it's a maybe it's one maybe it's two uh both out of position and your you know recently released shadow of the father are both you know dual point of view stories um you know about when when you're writing a story from that viewpoint you know it it seems to be a uh, a natural fit for you you know like what sort of advantages do you do you see in that well before you answer, Kyle, I can see one advantage, which is that uh, uh, anytime uh, the character has to do anything that's mundane or transitioning, you can just switch to the other character. I know I've been 
having problems with that where it's like uh, all the exciting stuff has happened and now he has to go home or think about what he's done and uh it'd be really convenient if i had another character to uh to pick up the action here while he was <laughs> doing all that it it does uh, i i, I kind of call that the the 24 cheat <laughs> um cuz in eight, 8 minutes yeah in 24 yeah you <laughs> go to commercial whenever jack bauer has to go to the bathroom or go somewhere and <laughs> it takes him 30 seconds in quote-unquote real time to go across la but um it it does help with that a lot we talked a bit about scene versus summary and this was this is sort of a way to avoid having to do summary of bits like the character goes home which still happen, and I mean, you don't avoid all of it. Some of the things in an out of position in Shadow of the Father were different structures of the multiple multiple person viewpoint. Um, out of position is actually five different single character stories, three from one viewpoint, two from another, and so I don't view them so much as being switching back and forth because each of the stories is kind of self-contained. You could extract any one of the stories and read it and get a pretty good sense for what was going on. You wouldn't need to pull it out beforehand, but, you know, put all together, they make up a a novel and character arcs. Uh, Shadow of the Father was actually written flipping back and forth, and I hadn't intended it to be that way initially. It was... It's the story of Yulan, who is the son of Val, who was the fox in the first Argaea books. And initially, it's just Yulan's story. He goes off to a mountain city and doesn't really want to be there, so he does a couple stupid things and then spends the rest of the book trying to fix what he's done and figure out how he can live with his destiny or whatever. But he goes there in the company of one of his friends and they get kind of separated almost immediately. And so I was thinking, well, I could just, you know, have the other friends show up from time to time, but then what was happening to him was also interesting and also relevant because he has his own character arc, which isn't as broad as Yolan's and is not as related as it probably should have been, but it ended up being kind of a separate story. But you're right. I mean, one of the big advantages is, you know, Yolan's talking to one of the officials in the government and says explain to me about all of this stuff that's going on. And instead of having to do an expository explanation, I can switch to the other character who's actually experiencing the thing that Elon's getting explained to him. So the reader gets an explanation without having to listen to some bureaucrat talk about it. The other the other thing you can do with the multiple character viewpoint is build tension. Yeah. And you can introduce an event and mine always seem to shift around in time so i've got you know one they they don't slip too much in shadow in um, the book i'm right now is a sequel to out of position which is also flips back and forth and sometimes one of them gets about a week in front of the other one but out of position i'm sorry shadow of the father takes place over like two days so they don't get that far out of sync but you can have one character doing something, and then the effects of what he does 
are not felt on the other character right away. The other character is doing things without the knowledge of that, but the reader has the knowledge of that. So you can use that to build dramatic tension where, you know, for example, one character is going into a house and encounters an enemy there who holds a knife to his throat. And you flip away from his segment and you go to the other character who's now also going towards the same house and doesn't suspect anything. But the reader knows what's going on in there. And so you can do a lot of sort of tricks with tension like that. Yeah, that's 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 amazingly effective. I remember the first time I was, or early on when I was reading, I think even uh, Lord of the Rings, actually, I was reading, you know, what was happening with Aragorn and, and all his crew. And I was like, no, I, I want to know what's going on with Frodo and Sam. And then by the time I'd got to the point where it switched to what was going on with, going on with Frodo and Sam, I was like, no, you you can't leave them there. I I have to know what happens, <laughs> uh-huh. you know? And that's, that's sort of another way to build tension is you can have little cliffhangers at the end of chapters that don't get resolved right away. So the reader's thinking, you know, what happened to Frodo? Oh, God, I'm going to go... And then, you know, get them caught up in the other the other Yeah, plots. and uh, I have to say, um, um, apologies for the fawning, but uh, Shadow of the Father was great for that, where just, just where I was really, you know, I had to know what happened next. You'd, you'd switch positions and, and, and leave me hanging there, sort of out well, of position, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> Thank you. And, you know, like I mentioned earlier, uh, for my own sort of storytelling inspiration, I mentioned both Lost and, you know, Battlestar Galactica, where... It'll go to a commercial break at a cliffhanger, and then when you come back from that commercial break, you're in a different part of the story. Is you don't go right back to the, you know, that you don't go back to the cliffhanger. You don't go back to the tension break. Is you let a whole new set of tension build, which is, uh, I think that uh, from a narrative standpoint, that's a fun. Uh, it's a fun option to have. And that's a sign of a good writer, by the way, when no matter whose who's perspective yeah. you're switching from, the re- if the reader doesn't want to leave that perspective and go to the other one, yeah. even yeah. if they were excited about it before, that, then you, you, you know you've got the person hooked. Yeah. And see, when, when I was reading Tolkien, of course, I was like probably not quite old enough for it yet, but I remember just being completely uninterested in Aragorn's <laughs> story. No matter what was going on with it, and I was just like, I want to know what happens to Bilbo and Frodo and Sam in the ring. I was at first, but then by the time it actually switched back to them, I was like, oh, nerds, you know, I, <laughs> blurg. <laughs> um, I don't care about them anymore. I want to know what happens here. So one one of the one of the early indications that I think um, I was at least somewhat successful with tension and shadow is I I got. A couple of messages on Twitter the other day, um, two messages the same morning from people who basically said they'd stayed up all night because they couldn't stop reading it once they started. And I feel bad about the lost sleep, but um, but it was cool. It was something I hadn't I hadn't ever tried to write a novel before that was specifically that much action, that much. One thing follows from the other thing follows from another thing. And one of the books, this is a kind of weird one, and there's probably many examples I could have taken, but I remember specifically uh, Cassandra Clare's City of Ashes was an inspiration for that. Uh, was it Bone or Ashes was the first one? I think Ashes was the first. I think it was Bones, wasn't it? Maybe it was City of Bones. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, it was her first book in the Mortal Instruments trilogy. And 
it was just a great adventure because the characters had a long-term goal, but then they all they had a series of short-term goals, and every time you thought something happened to screw them up, they would address it and fix it, but then something else would happen almost right away. And they'd have a couple little breaks, and there's a couple breaks in Shadow where you can relax a little bit and the characters relax a little bit. Um, and the, the other fun thing that you can do with multiple character viewpoints, although I don't know how much this applies to either of your stories, is you can switch viewpoints in the middle of a sex scene, which was, I, I have, found very entertaining. I have done that in my in my works, which shall not be named. <laughs> that's, actually, that's, that's fun, actually, yes. That's a question I did, I did want to ask you. So you have you have waterways, which is pretty light on the the sort of the, the more sexual aspect. Uh, then you after that you had out of position, which is very much not light. Not not a, not at all. No, not at all. Uh, and then you move on into shadow, which is you know back to being uh, you know lighter on the you know sort of sexual content. I think it's actually the. Uh, the, the least sexual of your novels. Yeah, only like maybe three or four, which is... I think there's really two. There's only two scenes. Yeah, there's only tech, really? two sex I thought I thought I remember three, but maybe that yeah. was just my, uh, so, I mean, mon- I mean, my own imagination. I, I, feel, I feel okay talking about this you know, specifically because you've mentioned it in public on uh, sort of like your journals and your blog postings that it's uh, not a very sexual story. Would you say that that's more because you know the story didn't you know warrant a lot of sexual content or because you know how much of that has to do with the story and how much of that do you think that you don't need sex to bring an audience in uh well partly it has to do with the fact that as i said i was writing this book which is very action focused and takes place over 2 to 3 days and so um, mm-hmm. The amount of sex in the book is kind of fundamentally limited by the stamina of the characters. Um, <laughs> but uh, the but the other I thing know is, what that's like. um, I'm not sure you do from what I've heard. <laughs> um, yeah, but you machine. The um, but the the story didn't really have a lot of room for it. It was it was used. Early on to set up the bond between the two main characters, it's used later on to kind of reinforce that bond because they've spent time apart and they're really going in different directions. And it was sort of meant to reinforce that they're on the same track and that this affection between them is still very strong. It, I, I will, I will say, um, people have said that Vol was pretty heavy on the sex, or at least some of the feedback that I got from my first novel was um, by the time it got later into the plot people viewed the sex scenes as almost an unwelcome distraction and they would say, I would I would almost skim the sex because I wanted to find out what happened with the plot and I did put sex in that book sort of partly as I say to prove my point that you can have a book where, or a serious story where sex plays a part but also mm-hmm. because I was thinking um you know how much do I have to entertain people with it? And I, it was a little bit not having not having confidence in my ability to tell a story at that point. Yeah, I think um, the idea of, of of having to put sex in to draw people in is a, is is a little bit of a myth because 
I think sex will get people to 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 pick up a book initially and and maybe buy it, but it doesn't keep them reading. Like if they read, then they read those sections, and they're not they're they're not as likely to be interested in the story. Yeah. So I think you know putting a lot of sex in a book can can put people off as much as it can draw them in. Yeah, I think that if all people want to read is sex, they'll read short stories online exactly. and not pay money to read a novel. Yeah, and so. Sort of building on this with the the series of Argan novels that you have, uh, Vol itself is pretty big on the sex. Pendant of Fortune switches over to being really heavy on the intrigue, and Shadow of the Father is big on the action. And I think it's really great that you're able to sort of switch the modes on that without losing the feel of the setting and of the story, which, you know, I'll I'll fawn over you for a bit that I think that your ability to do that is is very impressive. Um, Thank you. I appreciate that. But um and you, a lot you, of you, it you, you yeah. I, I was gonna say a lot of it is I keep I keep trying to experiment with things and mm-hmm. I never want to write the same book twice. Um, which, you know, I'm writing Out of Position 2, which is kind of the same <laughs> book as Out of Position 1, but um, but not. It's but in position. It's back in position. <laughs> back into position. Yeah. I'm curious um, to see what your ultimate title will be, by the way. So am I. Um, <laughs> well, Out of Position didn't have a title until it was well into the editing process. I think I was asking for title submit, title ideas in, like, June. Titles you, are you, so you hard. Actually, um, I think you actually uh, requested title suggestions in your live journal. I did. And uh, ended up the, the, the title I, did not come from the live journal, uh, actually. But I, th- I think that was your personal pick, wasn't it? Yeah, Out of that was mine. And that was the one I liked. I did not owe royalties to anyone. That's good. Um, but... So, you know, out of position was experimental because it was kind of I'd, I'd kind of been going away from having a lot of sex in the books, mm-hmm. and out of position was built out of several short stories. Which, when you release a short story, you write a sex scene into it, or I do, and only the last one really goes light on sex, which I thought worked for the book because mm-hmm. you have that early on. And it kind of mirrors their relationship where when you first get into a relationship with someone, you're like much more – It's uh, you, you take many more opportunities and uh, it's new and exciting and um, it's not that it's not exciting by the end of the book. It's that the reader doesn't need to see it again. Mm. Mm. So – the, at the beginning of the story, it establishes the relationship between the characters. It establishes how they interact. And by the end of the story, it's more like you can do sort of a fade to black. You can do little innuendos and jokes between the characters. It sets up their internal rapport. Um, one of the things in, in the early bits of Shadow of the Father was um, that Yolanda, and this, this is in sections posted online, so I'm going to talk about it a little bit. Uh, Elon and Cinch have a, a bet when they're doing target practice, and they don't say what the stakes are. You don't find out until the next chapter where you find out that the bet concerns what order they do their intimate activities in. Um, but that's the kind of thing that you want to show in a relationship. You want to show that the characters are comfortable enough that they have this language between them that means something to them. I will say... 
uh, getting back to your original question, which I think I've strayed quite far from, uh, Out of Position 2 is a little heavier on the sex just because the characters demand it a little more. Lee and Dev are both very sexual characters, I will admit. It's interesting to me that this is even a question at all. You know, we have this sort of division between stories or books without sex and stories with them because it's it's a part of our lives. You know, it's one of our basic drives behind survival. So, I don't it know. Is, it is interesting. I don't know how that fits into gay sex. But. And I see... Well, it's a drive. It's a drive. Yeah. Um, it's a drive with a social gay or not. drive. Yeah, it's basically a drive to establish relationship with another person. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, um, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, one of the things that you can say, language itself developed from a need to communicate and establish relationships with other members of our species, and so this whole exercise that we do is about building relationships. Um, I'm not trying to lead up to something that saying that as an author, you're having mind sex with all your readers, but um, they're, they're <laughs> kids, kids looking at me really weird. Um, I don't, th- I don't think that mind sex is cheating. So I think you're okay. <laughs> well, it, it's not cause it's only, it only goes one way. <laughs> Um, no comment. <laughs> so you're saying your readers don't enjoy it then? No. I'm saying that's it's a bigger time problem. Shift, yeah. Um, that's, but, that's not mind rape because we want it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, Does the reader get a chance to say no? <laughs> say, like, I appreciate hey, what they you're were, saying. They pick up the book. the book anytime. They pick up the book. They were totally asking for it. <laughs> um, they could buy a book whistle if they want. But um, <laughs> call the word police. We're enjoying our we're enjoying our audience of one here. The um, but you you make a good point. And actually, when you read books in the mainstream, um, especially when you get into the romance area, books that are just called romance, mm-hmm. I'm actually quite surprised by how explicit some of the sexual activity in those books is. And I kind of initially classified my books as erotica because the sex is fairly explicit. But it's not that much more explicit than it is in some of these romances. Hmm. And when so out of position... not describing the fireplace at all. Oh, right, right. Going right into it. Yep. Yeah. When uh, Out of Position was being read around this sort of more non-furry gay uh, community, there was not... The, people sort of talk about the mechanics of the sex... Like, uh, like what the one review I read recently made me laugh because the guy said, "As soon as I, as soon as I stopped wondering how the fox could deep throat the tiger without biting his junk off, then you know, <laughs> I started enjoying the story more and I got into the characters and the plot. And you know, my response to things like that is, of course, because you know, humans who deep throat each other don't have teeth, right? I'm glad I don't. I'm gonna say because you know the the fox has this nice long. <laughs> I'm sure, your husband muzzle. is too. <laughs> the, the, yeah, the, the the fox has the nice long slender muzzle, and the human just has I like mean, the the stubby little mouth. I'm sure that the teeth are pointier, but uh, you know, humans have teeth too. Anyway, getting getting aside from all that, there's there's a lot more sex, and I, and you know, I grew up too reading Piers Anthony, who does everything but. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. 
Speaking of masturbation. Who does everything but explicitly describe sex, sexual activity. and um, It's not... It's, it's almost more a self-imposed division, I think. Yeah. When you... I mean, Pierce Anthony seems to fetishize sex in a way to me. True. Yeah, which it's I mean, a contradiction in terms. It, it, but I mean, it is. No, when you, when you I, put, I know what he means. Though. When you put such huge importance on it and and avoid it and draw attention to it at the same time, you're you're it's, making sex itself this kind of weird, like the Victorians. It's well, not it's a, very, a normal part of life. It's a very adolescent perspective. Exactly. Is, that's yeah. the word I think of when I think of Piers Anthony. Is it's sex is this amazing thing. It's amazing and it's funny and it's scary all at once because you don't really know anything about it check it check out this national national geographic exactly (laughs) and uh anyone who's 17 what i try to do with the books is it's a part of their life they joke about it um they it's a natural reaction to things um yeah i say if you if you if you avoid sex if you can't read it if you can't look at it if you're concerned about it being in your media you're more obsessed about it than i am in your own way (laughs) well but i think and I, I think I'll—I agree with you, but I, I will also play devil's advocate and say there is a level of description and detail that people may not want to read. They may be okay, like there's like no sex in the the Lord of the Rings, for yeah, instance. It's, but if he had, I, I'm sure there are people who wouldn't have minded it if he had just kind of said, you know, you could you can do suggestions and fade to black you can do sort of a euphemistic level of detail where you know i i I wrote a sort of victorian story recently where the sex lasts all of i think two paragraphs and is very euphemistic and victorian it was actually extremely entertaining to write but um and then you can and then you can sort of go into the you can go into the level of detail that i usually go into which is taking the character's thought process through the activity itself. Well, it has to mean something to the character. Right. I mean, it has to it has to fit into the character's emotional arc in some way. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, you know, if you uh, if you uh, wrote a scene in which you described a, a large chunk of roast beef being slowly revealed to everyone, and at first you saw just a little bit of the gristle, and then eventually you saw the whole thing, that would seem really strange to everyone, because you're putting unnecessary focus on that appetite right but i mean i don't know whether i should be hungry or horny now it can't can it be both yes stay out of my freezer beef yeah no but there's a point there which is that focus on the um satisfaction of an appetite suggests a denial of that appetite that that the denial of that appetite and the and the restraint from it, the n- not being able to satisfy your your appetite, is somehow a major part of your life, right. and uh. and maybe an uh, an unhealthy part of your life. That it's not that the appetite exists so much that is the that is unhealthy, but that you never satisfy it, and that you put he such thou protest too much such. Folk, exactly. You put such focus yeah. on not satisfying it that it, that it's it's strange. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'll agree I with see that. that. I think um, I think it, a lot of what I try to do is make sure that when I when I do go into detail, it's to talk about particular aspects that mean something to the characters. It's not just 
you know, and then we did this thing which we'd done a hundred times before, and yeah. this is exactly how it went, and it went the same way this time. <laughs> and it was just, right. you know, and it was just good because we're kind of reaffirming the relationship, but it doesn't really advance the character arcs or anything. Yeah, so. mechanical yeah. sex scenes are not yeah. hot. I will say that you know, out of position certainly gets very explicit at points, and it's you know, it's graphic and it's erotic and it's it. You know, it's it's explicit and undeniably sexual, but it's relevant. It's it's relevant, and it's never licentious, if I can say that. It's never there just to be. I think lewd you just did, and just to be like, wink, wink. I'm being sexy here. Yeah, here's what it's, you guys wanted to see. It is, yeah, exactly. It, it's it's never it's never wry, and it's never gratuitous. And that's important because nobody. And it is important. Nobody but, wants to read a sex scene that's no, mechanical, right? <laughs> you know, tab A in the slot I, B. I will is say. The, yeah. I will say that I, I I did write a sex scene with a robot. In- <laughs> Heat three, and I shouldn't say that uh, nobody wants to read a sex scene that me- that's mechanical because uh, they've actually discovered whole scenes where Danielle Steele uh, copy and pasted, copied and pasted entire sex scenes from one book to another. Wow! And, and that book sold just as well as the previous. So some well, people sure. want it to be mechanical. Yeah. So, but, like I was going to say, like the, the the big cliche is you know insert tab A and a slot B, which is you know that's the mechanics of it, and. Which I, I think th- is totally unfair to lesbians. <laughs> well, you know, lesb- lesbians, you know, notwithstanding, since you know, and my you, tab you do, isn't named A. Ka- Kyle, you do do the, the 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 gay erotica. I think that you know a lot of your work proves that yes, I can explain the physical goings on of a sexual act, and I can do it in a titillating way, but still make it relevant to the story and not just be there to you know turn on the reader and that's really difficult to do it's sort of you know like if you're going to go from a dramatic perspective is okay like here's a beloved character do uh, i kill them off just to make the reader feel bad and just to make the reader nervous or does that serve the greater story and it's it's very similar i've heard that uh, kyle's characters actually refuse to be nude in the scene unless it's artistic and important to the story so well we we, we have certain loopholes in the contracts <laughs> when we're when we're doing these oh is that what you call this the sheathiness loophole yes um so we're gonna i think uh get we're running a little short on time so uh, can i ask one final question you may so shadow of the father is actually the first time you've gone back to argea in quite a long time so you had Pendant of Fortune, and then the next year you didn't have a novel, and then you had Waterways, and then you had Out of Position. So this is your first time back to Argea in almost half a decade. Well, I will say that after Pendant of Fortune, the year after that, I had Prisoners release another stories, which was That's several true. stories set in Argea, okay, one of which well, okay. was fairly long. It was novelish. Yeah. In, in Pendant, uh, Prisoners release and other stories is a, is a great volume, and. I loved all the stories in that quite a lot, and uh, thank you. I uh, had some embarrassing moments reading it at Starbucks, and you know, <laughs> wishing that I weren't at Starbucks. I'll say that. I'll, much. I'll have to ask you about those after the podcast. Oh yeah, yeah. we won't talk about that on air. But um, how did it feel to get back to that after so long? Uh, it was it was really cool. Um, I, I it's one of the things as an author that I'm sure you understand as well, and uh, and you not too will come to know is by the time people are reading your books and commenting on your books, you're on to the next one. And so 
when I was getting a lot of feedback about Argea and I would get emails about the church and about why did the species act this way and, um, you know, what happens with this character, what happens with this character. I, I was in the middle of writing waterways and then I was writing out of position. And it was, it was really nice to get back to the world and to be able to create another little part of it because most of this book takes place in a completely different city and completely different kind of city than any of the previous books that occurred in. The previous books both occur in like big capital cities. Um, this is a small provincial town. Part of the underlying backstory of Argea is that the um, the world originally was settled by tribes of similar species who formed towns and castles and stuff by species and it was the introduction of the church that allowed the species to mingle which is why um, Tephos and Ferenis are the two more advanced nations because they're able to work together with the church and blah 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 and there's a book about the church uniting the tribes and, and all that but this mountain city is very much in the past it's very much still all ruled by foxes and part of that is because it's so remote and it's so hard to get there that no other um, kind of people have been able to get a foothold in the city and people would show up there and live there for a little bit and then they would just be like, you know, screw this, nobody likes me here and I'm just going to go away. Except for the mice who came over when, um, in one of the wars way, way back when and were told they could settle there and then they were kind of screwed over but they couldn't get back home. So, um, So it was really, it was neat to explore that city and to have the relationships between that and the rest of the world, actually one of the best compliments I got about the character of the book was somebody saying that they felt that Yolan really came across as Val's son, that he had a lot of the traits of his father but was a different character. I agree with that, yeah. actually, yeah. And I thought that was really cool because I was aiming for that, but it's the kind of thing that you can't you can't ever put down and say, well, and you know, like his father, he blah blah blah. So, <laughs> yeah. so that was cool. So it was, it was a lot of fun. I do have um, probably not the novel following out of position two, which is going to be a completely different thing. But the novel following that, I believe, is going to be going back to Argea, but it will be with none of the characters that are in any of the previous books. Mm. Uh, I was going to say one of the things I liked best about Shadow is that you explored a part of Argea that was very different from what we had seen before, but it fit so well into the world that I didn't question it. And, you know, my own writing is very much in the vein of, you know, sort of like action and thriller, and so the story of Shadow very much appealed to me. But you did something new, and you did something different, but it didn't feel like, oh, like, what would it didn't just feel like oh like, what if I was going to tell an action story in this world what would it be like? It, it didn't feel cheap or fake. It, it felt like here's a logical extension of you know like you know not everything is the capital, not everything is the big city, not everything is this big political affair. You know here's the rest of the world. Here is a new story. Here is a new theme. Here are new characters. But it still felt familiar because it was the same world, and that was really great. Oh, thank you very much. Um, it was it, the the relationship between the little provincial town and the big city was always was interesting to write because 
you know, I, I've been in that situation, and there's it's very much a little brother, big brother relationship where you're like, man, I hate them. They think they're so great, and you know, we don't need them. We're just good on our own. But oh god, I want to be like them so much. <laughs> and it was just fun to write that into the into the story. Again, it's a background thing. It's not nobody ever comes out. Well, actually. One of the characters does kind of come out and say that, but, um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun going back to the world. It's a world that a lot of people really enjoy, and I'm glad of that because I got a couple more stories in it. Uh, maybe some short stories coming out. Who knows? Well, thank you, Kyle, for the chance for Rikoshi and me to interview you about. Uh Shadow of the Father. And and thank you, not too, for joining us and <laughs> asking us questions about our two books. Rikoshi, it's been a great pleasure having you on the podcast here. We're uh um we're sorry that uh Kame Hirsaki couldn't be here, but I know he had a lot of questions to ask and I think we covered most of them. After what he did to me in his last story, I think this is probably better that I don't have to look him in the eye right now. Yeah, it was I didn't really I hear you. I, I appreciate all that he does, but uh, yeah. yeah I didn't was, really hear you complaining much was, about what he did to you in I the story. I it was unacceptable. But, yeah. <laughs> um, so we're going to wrap this up. Next episode is going to be aired the week after, I believe, after Valentine's Day. So we have an email address, unsheathedpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll be talking about Valentine's and romance, the... Meaning of choosing a day once a year to celebrate relationships, um, which was a decision made by the Hallmark Company. Um, and not really. I just like saying that because it makes me sound edgy and counterculture. And it makes me, it, um, makes, it makes me glare at him. Yes, it does. And uh, um, I will note here that this is the probably the first time that Fox is about numbered otters on our podcast. You at least they'll have the otter quorum. You have I, the, your your otter quotient is uh, a non-zero sum. It I'm is. a minority now, though. I get to go to college for cheaper. It is. Uh, if you want to pick up either the seventh chakra or shadow of the father, they are both available at www.sofawolf.com/catalog. You can find them pretty easily. They're up there under the new items. Um, not too, of course, is the author of the story Moon Thief, which appears in the collection X, which is also up on SoFolf.com, and is, also very hot. is, and is eligible for an Ursa Major Award. So It is. I'm sure um, Cam Hirosaki and myself will talk a little more about the Ursa Majors next week. But until then, send us your emails if you have anything to say on Valentine's Day. We'll get back to reading emails next week. And uh, thank you both again, and thank you all for listening. This is Kyle Gold.